We are reading God's word. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem he brought, that the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hands as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in. But they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Thank you. You may have a seat. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. I realize that was a a bit of a hard left turn, right? (coughs) Laughing about the pool party. Okay, open your Bible. Uh, Sorry about that. Could have ease that transition a bit. Just so you know as well, uh, Melissa just read the first nine verses, but we're going to study through this whole uh, chapter today, so you do want to have your Bible in your hand. And it's interesting, as we dive just straight into the text uh, this morning, uh, the way that, that God even structures the Bible communicates things to us. And so this uh, passage is a great example. Uh, we haven't talked about this at this point yet in Daniel, but, but commentators and theologians have noted as they've studied the scripture that Daniel writes at least this first section of his book in what's known as a chiasm. A chiasm. Any seminarians out there know what that means? I don't really expect most of you to. A chiasm is basically the idea, um, it's sort of a parallel idea. And so in, in Daniel chapter 1 is kind of an introduction. And then the idea would be um, there's point A and point A1 later that are combined, point B and point B1 that are combined, point C and C1 that are combined. That doesn't make any sense, so look at this. This will help you. Here's the structure of this book that we've been looking at. Chapter 1 is just kind of an introduction, and then chapter 2 has to do with a a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has about four kingdoms, but then chapter 7 has to do with a vision about four kingdoms. Then chapter 3 has to do with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being delivered from the fiery furnace. Chapter 6, which we look at next week, is about Daniel being delivered from the lion's den. You see the parallel? And then chapters 4 and 5 are the same kind of idea. They're both about the humbling of a king. Uh, Chapter 4, what we looked at last week was King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the most powerful man in the world, totally humbled and experiences salvation. Uh, today, what we look at is chapter 5, which is Belshazzar, the, the, the acting king in uh, Babylon at the time, his humbling, but instead of his salvation, we see his destruction. And this is a literary device that, that the authors would use to try to show you what's most important. 
And so this happens a lot of different places in Scripture. A lot of times we aren't necessarily trained to be able to see it very well, but it happens. And so the idea here is that the key thing is whatever's in the center of the chiasm. That's sort of how it works. Well, what's at the very center of the chiasm is what we looked at last week. It's the conversion of the most powerful man in the world. And this structure itself is designed to communicate something to the people who are reading it. This literary device is is designed to do that. And what it's designed to do is, is to communicate this idea, that God is faithful and he accomplishes his purposes. God is king. God is in charge. He's faithful. He accomplishes his purposes. That's an important thing because this book is written to God's people, the nation of Israel, while they're in exile. They're in exile because of their unfaithfulness to him, because of their idolatry. They've been carried off to Babylon, and things are not going well for them. And yet in the midst of that, God is trying to communicate that he's faithful, he's in charge, And the hearts of the most powerful men in the world are in his hand. He's got it. And so I love just how that works. And so today we look at the faithfulness of God, unfortunately not to save, uh, but to destroy. And so that's what we're looking at here in chapter 5 this morning. There's a lot of interesting stuff here. I'm going to try to not get lost in all the historical background, but it is fascinating uh, when you understand the background of chapter 5. Five. And so uh, let me just tell you a couple things about Daniel chapter 5. It takes place about 20 or 30 years after what we studied in chapter 4. So chapter 4 was about King Nebuchadnezzar having this crazy experience where he becomes like a beast and he's humbled and he sees that God is the one who's in charge. He's the one with an everlasting kingdom and he experiences conversion to the one true God. Uh, 20, 30 years later uh, is when the events that we're looking at take place. And we actually have a specific date of these events. These uh, events that we're going to describe here today took place in October of 539 B.C. October 539 B.C. In fact, uh, we think it's October 12th and 13th of uh, 539 B.C. And there's some historical reasons why we think that. It, It relates to the fall of Babylon. We're introduced in verse 1. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Uh, Daniel doesn't transition to who King Belshazzar. He just assumes that his people uh, receiving this would know who he was, but we don't know who he was, so some background on Belshazzar. Belshazzar uh, was the son and the co-ruler of uh, Nabonidus. Uh, After Nebuchadnezzar, there were a couple kings that ruled for just a year or so, and then Nabonidus uh, was right there. Um, Some think that Nabonidus was actually one of the, uh, was significantly related to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, But Nabonidus was the king. He was the the one in charge, the last king, in fact, of of Babylon. Uh, But Nabonidus, um, he wanted to spend some time relaxing. He he didn't really want to do a lot of the ruling thing, and so he built this... uh, this getaway place in a city called Tima. It's sort of like if the president just hung out in Camp David all the time, right? He doesn't want to do anything. He'd put someone else in charge. And the person he put in charge was Belshazzar. And so uh, Belshazzar is, is um, acting like the king. He's called in this passage the king. And that's because functionally that's what he was. What he was. Uh, but we know um, fr- from this as well as from history that, that he was a, a co-regent of, of Nabonidus. And uh, Belshazzar's kind of full of himself. Uh, somebody said that uh, Belshazzar is uh, Belshazzar's born on third base, imagining that he hit a triple. 
You get that? So he, he's there. He's, he's got the power. He's, but he hasn't done anything to, to achieve it. He hasn't done anything to get it. He's not a great guy. He's not all that powerful. He hasn't done much. Nebuchadnezzar was proud and full of himself, but at least he'd done something. Belshazzar hasn't really done anything. Um, and so that's something that's important to know. The other thing that you need to know, background-wise, is that had, it, it, at this point it had been prophesied in multiple places that this great kingdom of Babylon would fall to the Medes. Uh, the Medes were a group of people uh, who ended up uniting with the Persians in 558 BC, and this Medo-Persian army would, in fact, eventually conquer Babylon and take it over. In fact, if you look at chapter 6, uh, verse 1, actually, uh, look at 531. It says in Darius, the Mede received the kingdom. So it had been prophesied that the Medes would conquer Babylon. It happened in a couple of places. I'll just show these to you. Isaiah 13, behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them. This is a prophecy against Babylon. Who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Another prophecy against Babylon in Jeremiah 51. Sharpen the arrows, take up the shields. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes. Because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. Remember, Babylon had been the one that conquered Jerusalem. It burned the temple. It hauled them all off into exile. Uh, That was part of God's plan. But God's saying, I've had enough. I'm going to send in the Medes. Now, one more important historical thing. And, And these pieces, I think, and hopefully will all come together. This felt to the Babylonians, this felt to the foolish Belshazzar like an empty threat. And the reason was because Babylon was such a powerful and fortified city. Babylon, we said last week, was probably the first city of the ancient world, over 200,000 people, uh, pioneers of architecture and of engineering, and just did some incredible things. And they thought of themselves as impenetrable. And the reason was a good one. Uh, The reason was because there was this enormous, thick wall that surrounded their city. Uh, In some places, they say it was probably up to six meters wide, which is quite a ways, right? 20-some feet. Like, it was so big that they would sometimes, it's reported, have chariot races on the tops of these walls, so this was surrounded, fortified by a really huge, thick wall. We've got a, an artist's rendering of what that probably, what this city probably would have looked like. And you can see that this city, surrounded by this wall on all, uh, on all sides, and then in the middle is the Euphrates River. So not only did they have this incredible fortification with these impenetrable walls, but they also had a source of fresh water, the Euphrates River. And so that, that came through. Um, and, and then you can see sort of, if you look up around to the right side, you can kind of see where the water goes around the walls of the city. They had directed it and built a moat, uh, and, and each of those little squares represents a gate. So, so this, you couldn't get in here. You couldn't attack this because you, you couldn't get through the moat, and then if you got through the moat, uh, you couldn't get through the walls. Even in the places where there were gates that you might try to attack, underneath where the water was, they had built, built like metal uh, rods where you couldn't get under there. So you, could, you couldn't get under it. You, could, you couldn't get through it. And so when these kings would hear these prophecies, the Medes are going to conquer the Babylons, the Babylonians, they'd go, yeah, right. It can't happen. Our, our, our walls are impenetrable. Our, 
our cities inconquerable. It is not going to happen. And God says, oh, really? Oh, really? So let's look at this passage. Belshazzar made a feast for thousands. Uh, Interestingly, uh, leading up to what's happened here, the Medes have conquered a number of cities that are nearby. Uh, As uh, Belshazzar has this feast, he knows that the Medes are outside the city, that they've been trying to get in, that they're trying to make an attack. And he is so confident in in the the fortress that he has in this city that he's going to have a huge feast. He's going to have a huge party. Some have speculated that perhaps this was a holiday of sorts. And so you see just the incredible thing. There's a thousand people there, it says in verse 1. And it says in verse 2, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So get the scene here. Belshazzar is having a party. The party is there with his lords, right, all the people leading under him, his, uh, his wives, his concubines. You're a really confident fool when you get the wives and the concubines together. Right, and they're just having this huge party. They're getting hammered. They're drinking. Right, they're having a great time, and and Belshazzar, in his pride, says, "Let's go get the cups that we took from Jerusalem years and years ago. Let's go get those and let's drink from them." Now that's an interesting thing. Because uh, at this point, Babylon had conquered lots of different people. And every time they conquered people, they took off all their relics and all their sacred items and all those things. Why does he specify, let's go get the ones from Jerusalem? Well, remember, he knows about these prophecies. And it's as if he's saying, God, bring it on. You know what we're going to do? Here you go. Verse 3. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now remember, these were a, this was a polytheistic people. And they would give credit to their gods for all of their success. And so here's what's happening. There's an army gathered outside to conquer them, and he's so full of himself and so proud that he says, you know what, let's go get those things from Jerusalem, and let's use them to praise the gods who conquered Jerusalem. Oh yeah, God of Israel, you're so tough. You fell right before the gods of gold and silver, wood, and et cetera. It's, it's brash. It's, do, do you get the scene there? I mean, this is a specific form of pride. And, and God is going, no, no, no. Okay, you, you cross the line. So it says, verse 5, immediately, immediately something happened. This reminds us of chapter 4, verse 31, where it says that Nebuchadnezzar was on the roof and saying, Is this not the great Babylon? It says, while the words were still on his lips, God interrupted. While this is happening, while this praising, this reveling in these false gods, this mockery of the God of Israel is happening, verse 5, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. So you get this? There's no body. There's just a hand. 
Someone's going, okay, who spiked the wine? There's just a hand, right? This is where we get the phrase, the writing on the wall, right? When something is like, especially if something bad is about to happen and you see it coming, you go, well, the writing's on the wall. Why do you say that? It comes from this story. He sees the hand writing. This is terrifying. Verse 6, then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Right? He, he faints. This is terrifying. At some point he wakes up and he calls everybody in. And this is the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Right? Third ruler because Belshazzar is like the second ruler. He's the, the, like the, the reigning uh, interim type king. And this is how confident he is that nothing bad is going to happen. Whoever can do this, I'll, I'll give you a great position in the government. You'll have an incredible role. And so he does what his ancestors had done, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, in this passage, it says uh, Nebuchadnezzar calls him in verse 2 and verse 11 and 13 and 18, calls him uh, Belshazzar's father. That word could also and probably would be better translated predecessor because it wasn't his direct father. But, but he does what his ancestors had done and calls together all these wise guys and says, hey, tell me what happened. And, and this writing, we find out later, is written in Aramaic. Now, it's not that they didn't know Aramaic. It's that they couldn't understand the significance of the phrase. And so um, the kings come in. They, they can't do anything. It says, verse 9, Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. This great, powerful guy, his knees are knocking. His color's changing. He can't figure it out. So uh, what does he do? He goes to his mommy. He goes to his mommy. It says in verse 10, the queen, and that's probably like the queen mother. That would be Nabonidus' wife. Uh, he, she, she says, hey, uh, Belshazzar, you need to know some stuff. Uh, your ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar, had this same kind of experience. It's possible, uh, probably, that Nebuchadnezzar was uh, Belshazzar's grandfather. He says, hey, this happened before uh, to, to, to Nebuchadnezzar, is what the queen says. And she says, uh, there was a guy, when everyone else got stumped, there was one person that could do this. This was Daniel. This guy named Daniel, this guy from Judah, Daniel. Now, at this point, Daniel is about 80 years old. If you kind of do the math on, on how long this is all taken, right? When we started the book of Daniel, Daniel was a teenager and we were admiring his strength as a youth, but he stayed faithful. He's now 80-some years old and the queen says, you got to get Daniel. So the king brings Daniel in. This is in verses 13 and 14. It says, hey, I've heard that you can do this stuff. Um, you know, you can solve these problems. He says, verse 16, I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing, this is the offer of the king uh, to Daniel. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And so Daniel answers him. And, and I love the way Daniel answers. L look at verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Now, part of this is probably because Daniel knows these rewards aren't going to mean anything in about 24 hours. 
And Daniel's really old. You know how old people can just say whatever they want, right? I mean, those of you who are older, congratulations. You get to, you know, you say anything, just great. So he's like, keep, keep your stuff. I don't need your junk. But I'll read this, uh, and I'll make you known the interpretation. Verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father, again, that word is probably predecessor, uh, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty, He's recounting what happened. But, and because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. Whom he would, he humbled. Right? Nebuchadnezzar did whatever he wanted. Verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He fed on grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. If you weren't with us last week, go back. Read chapter 4. That's everything we talked about. Verse 22 is a key verse. And you, his son, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart though you knew all this. What an indictment. You you knew what happened. And we don't know how much he knew, but he knew enough to know basically the story. I mean, I would think that the story of the king eating grass, going crazy, would sort of pass down. Right? You might hear about that. He says, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the God of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. There's a pride here that Belshazzar has that's the same pride that many of us have. It's the pride of ignoring the truth. It's the pride of ignoring who God is and what he's done. Now, some people are proud and just full of themselves, and it doesn't necessarily, they don't know much about God. They're they're ignorant, and they, they they don't have that information. But many people, many church people, maybe many Christian people, have all kinds of truth about God, know all things about who God is, and yet ignore it. Don't acknowledge it. Don't live in light of it. Instead, give themselves to foolish things. That's what's going on here. He's he's saying, King, you've been given yourself to all these idols, gold, bronze, iron, wood, stone. They, they, They don't see or hear or know, and yet God has your breath in his hand. King, you're going to answer to him. And you knew that. You knew you would, and you ignored it. A couple weeks ago, uh, Molly and I got to go to California for the Acts 29 uh, network. That's a church planning network that we're part of. We got to go for the uh, pastor's retreat that was there. Um, Some of you listened to Matt Chandler. He's a a pastor in Texas, and some of you listen to his podcasts and things. And he's the the president right now of Acts 29. And, And one of the things he talked about in 
in, his, in, his, uh, in our time together there that I just was so impacted by, he said, listen, there's things that the Bible says that you know are true. Like you're going to give an account to God and be sure your sins will find you out. And he says, you're not going to be the one that cheats that verse. You're not going to be the one that cheats the Bible. You're not going to be the one that's the exception. Here's what's coming. You're going to give an account of your life to God. You're not going to cheat that. You're not going to get out of that. And some of you, because of the difficulty of what that might mean in terms of how it might change your life, how it might reorient your priorities, how it might need to change your relationships, the ways, the things you might have to give up, the people you might have to start loving, it's just more comfortable to ignore it. And that is the pride, it's the comfort of ignoring the truth. That's what Belshazzar does. So Daniel says, okay, we'll get to the writing, verse 24. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Which I imagine he had to have said like, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. That's just a great, what a great line. And Perez, your kingdom is divided. Notice not will be divided, it is divided. And given to the Medes and the Persians. Your days are up. These are all accounting terms. Your days are numbered. Right? That may be where we get that phrase too. Your days are numbered. Time's up. And then Belshazzar, still totally ignorant, totally foolish, totally full of himself, verse 29, then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And he's probably going, you got to be kidding me. I'm taking all this stuff off in like 24 hours. What, what are you doing? Why? He's still proud. Verse 30, that very night... Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. That very night. Here's what history tells us. History tells us that the Medo-Persians came up with a great idea. They went upstream, and they found a way to reroute the Euphrates River so that all that water that was in the city dried up. And then they could dig underneath the walls, and they walked right in, destroyed the city, Belshazzar, dead, that night, October 13th, 539 B.C. You're not going to cheat God. I, I just find that amazing, the, the historicity of all that. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom. He's 62 years old. We'll talk more about interactions with him next week. So there's a lot of interesting things there. There's a lot of attacks on pride and a lot of things that we could pull out, a lot of lessons. Um, but here's something that I, I want to make sure we do. Anytime we study the Bible, this is anytime you study the Bible personally, anytime you teach, if you're leading in a redemption community, if you're leading a class, if you're ever preaching a sermon, here's something you need to know. You've got to be sure that the point of the lesson, the point of the study, is the same point as the passage. Get that? 
There's a lot of things you can do. But anytime we're reading the Bible, we have to go, okay, now why was, why was the author writing that to the people he was writing at the time he was writing? Otherwise, you just sort of import all your own meanings and all your own ideas, and well, here's what this means to me. Here's what ends up happening. If, if you don't follow this rule, you might end up thinking that God's will is for everyone to be a snowbird. Because you'll read Acts 27, 12. And it says, and because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. (laughs) If you don't understand this principle, you'll think that God requires all Christians to be Republicans. It says in Ecclesiastes 10, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left has nothing to do with American politics. Right, but you can just import your own. Well, I think that's what that means. No, what, 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 what did the author mean to that audience at that time? And so we have to think, okay, who is the audience? The audience is the people of Israel who are downcast, who are discouraged because they've been in exile. They're, they're far from home. They've, they, they've left Jerusalem, the city of peace, and now they're in the city of Babel, the city of idolatry, and they're discouraged. And and at the pinnacle of this book, Daniel is trying to communicate, God rules the kings of the world. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Have hope. Hang in there. God is in charge. That's the point of this passage. That's the point of this text. And that's what we should learn from it. God rules the kings of the world. God rules everything in the world. He's the king of kings. Don't be afraid. It says in Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Get the picture? Look down at your hand. There's a little, you know, one of those little cracks just filled with water, and God's like, ooh. That's the king's heart. The most important people in the world. Just, he's got them in his hand. Right? Did you see that back in verse 23? The God in in whose hand is your breath. Don't be afraid. It's one of the most common commands of Scripture. Over 220 times in the Bible it says, do not be afraid or fear not. Why? Because we are incredibly fearful people. We're fearful because we love our comfort and we're afraid of things that would disrupt that. We're fearful because we love control and when we don't know the future and we don't have eyes to see everything that could happen, we get worried, we get afraid, we panic. And I'm not just talking about the moments, the, the, the intense moments when you should be afraid. I'm talking about the underlying fear and dread that so many people, even Christians, live under. Am I going to face financial ruin? Are my kids going to turn out okay? What in the world is going on with the economy, with politics, the election? What about the culture? I mean, we live in a culture where one of the options you have is to go to a movie theater and shoot it up. I'm afraid of that. I was going to see that movie. Now I'm not. Right? I mean, it's this fear. And listen, there is a lot to be afraid of, for sure. There's a lot that's scary. But listen, faith is not the absence of fear. It's confidence in the presence of Jesus despite your fear, to overcome your fear. 
The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a river wherever he wants. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of financial ruin and distress. Listen, if God clothes the birds of the field, you're much more valuable than they, Jesus says. So seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. The rest will be added to you. You can live on much less than you think, and I hope you don't have to. But don't be afraid. God's in charge of that. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, all the silver, all the gold, all the resources. They're his. Don't be afraid of what can happen to your kids. God loves them more than you do. He loves them more. And don't be afraid of the political situation. God establishes authority. King's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Listen, the most powerful guy in the world here, God shows up for a few seconds and his knees knock and his color changes. God's in charge. Don't be afraid. God's not surprised by the decline of the culture. This hasn't rattled him. He tells us this is how it's going to be, and he gives us the courage to endure it. See, our leader as followers of Christ, as Christians, our, our leader is a man of incredible courage, Jesus Christ. The kind of courage that when he's on an empty stomach and facing the temptations, not just of demons and not just of the world, but of the devil himself, can say, Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God and stare him down. That's a man of courage. He's the kind of man who knows what he was about to endure and and felt a level of fear in the midst of it, so much so that he was sweating blood. Anyone ever been so afraid you sweat blood? You know, scientists and uh, doctors tell us there is a condition where under incredible stress, the capillaries in your forehead break and the sweat is, is mingled with blood. You ever been there? I haven't. Jesus has. And he didn't back down. He faced it. He endured it. And listen, all that is in Christ is credited to those who have faith in Christ. We are in Christ. He becomes our new identity. He becomes our new reality. We are not defined by our circumstances. We are not defined by what could happen. We are not defined by anything we could be afraid of. We're defined by him. We're in him. And there is no reason to be afraid. Does this mean that that if you trust that God will keep you and protect you, that nothing bad will happen to you, that, that nothing bad could happen to your kids, that you'll be free from any kind of suffering and pain? Of, of course not. Of course not. But God's in charge. And he's doing things for his glory and for our good. And as my good friend Tom Schrader, the teaching pastor at our Gilbert congregation says, no matter how bad it gets, it can only last a lifetime. And then there's eternity with him. And that feels like a trite way to talk about suffering. I understand that. But if you can step back and you can see the big picture, God is in charge. Don't be afraid. I love Psalm 56. Psalm 56 says this, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. 
In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? What can mortal man do to me? When I'm afraid, I I will have times of fear, but I will actively put my trust, put my hope, put my confidence in you. As I said, faith isn't the absence of fear, it's the presence of Jesus over your fear. Now we're going to finish this in, I think, a fairly memorable way. I need a couple of volunteers, energetic volunteers. Lauren, I think I need you. Malia, I think I need you. Any other volunteers? Like actual volunteers? Want to join me? <laughs> come on, come on, come on up. Get up here. All right, you, you can go, go, up, go up there. Yeah, you don't have to climb the scaffolding. Um, we're going to sing a song that I think might be based on Daniel 5.23. This was the number one song played by DJ. Come on up. Lauren Gratup, everybody. Malia Ambrosia, I've seen you guys sing before, so I know you can do this. We're going to sing the song that in April of 1958 was the number one song played by disc jockeys in America. It's a song you know, all right? It's a song called He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. This feels funny and this feels silly, but you need to remember this. It's true. And when you start feeling afraid and you... And you go, I need to trust. Just start singing this song. And it feels silly, but, but we need to all sing it together. Will we do it? We're going to put the words up, all right? And I'm going I'm to lead us off. A lot of passion, a lot of energy, everything you learned in vocal camp. Here we go. All right? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. Come on up. He's got the little bitty babies in his hands. He's got the little bitty babies in his hands. He's got the little bitty babies in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. Turn to the person next to you. Tell him, brother. In his hands, he's got you and me, brother. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. Last one. He's got the whole world in his hands. 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 Done. Done. Yeah. Great job. Good job. Thank you. Okay, those of you with cell phones, delete that file. (laughs) I do not want to see that on YouTube or Facebook. I will be watching you, Ambrosia. You can embarrass your sister with it, but not me. I know that's funny. I know that's silly. But it's so true. God has the hearts of the kings. He's got your very breath in his hands. You can trust him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you um, that this is true, that you are the King of kings. You're the Lord of lords. You reign and rule. And God, we can trust you. We can count on you. We can depend on you to protect us and to care for us. And God, even in the times when you do allow in your sovereignty uh, 
difficult and painful and bad things to happen, God. We can trust that your heart is good, that you will give us the grace even to endure it and even to see that you are better than even great circumstances. God, we don't want to be like those who are rich in this world but who are empty towards you. And so, God, help us to trust you. Thank you for Jesus who is our courage. We pray in his name. Amen. 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 And the good news that we celebrate now uh, in this moment is, is that not only does God have the world in his hands, not only is he ultimately and in, in completely in control of all things, he has made a way for us uh, to know him and to find peace in the reality that he is sovereign. See, just, just 